Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Welcome to Sydney Writers Festival 2022. My name is Marie Hardy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Warren Ellis, Nina Simone's Gum. Uh, yeah, woo. Um, yeah, come on, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get it out. Nice. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present, and to acknowledge that this always was and always will be... Oh, OK, we'll do it one more time. It always was and always will be... Hell yeah. And uh, anyone who has the financial capacity, paytherent.net.au. Um, before I introduce our guest today, I will do some housekeeping. Switch all the mobile phones to silent if you haven't already. Um, please don't record the event. Keep photos to a minimum. Turn your flash off because it's embarrassing when you start and the flash, everyone knows it's you. If you're going to use the hashtag Sydney Writers Festival, um, I am going to leave about 10 minutes for questions at the end of the session, so if you want to start formulating something that you might like to ask Warren now, I'll let you know when it's time to go down to the two microphones either side of the stage. As we all know, no soliloquies, make it a question, all that sort of thing. Um, the bookshop is in the main foyer. I'm sure you would have walked past it. Unfortunately, Warren will not be there to sign it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't buy a copy of his book on the way out. Warren Ellis is an Australian multi-instrumentalist and composer, most famous for his work as collaborator and bandmate of Nick Cave in both The Bad Seeds and Grinder Man. Both solo and alongside Cave, he is also a multi-award-winning film composer. His own band, Dirty Three, have released eight studio albums since 1994, and he is an in-demand producer and writer. Warren's first book is his memoir, which I'll be speaking to him about today, Nina Simone's Gum. Please welcome Warren Ellis. Hello, everyone. Wow, look at you all. It's like Gandalf looming over me, isn't it? I feel like I'm kind of lost in his beard. I'll just peer out through it every now and then, ask questions. Now, Warren is in London, where it is in the morning, and um, we discussed his sartorial choices, which were going to be elegant in every direction anyway, but I'm really enjoying the tropical fruit motif that he's bringing the sunshine to us. I'm bringing on, I'm bringing on the uh, gods of summer. Um, now let's talk about your beautiful book, Warren. Now this book did begin as a series of photographs and in a way you were trying to get out of writing this book. Is that true? The book, yeah, I mean, the book, it kind of landed on my lap in a way. Like I'd been approached by Dan Paps from Faber um, I guess two years before I wrote it, he'd seen The Dirty Three when he was a much younger man and he remembered my uh, spiels between songs and stuff like that. And he contacted me somehow, I think via email and said, you know, I, I think you might have something to say. And I, and I said, what, like a memoir? And he said, well, maybe, I don't know. I just think you might have something to say. And I said, look, I couldn't think of anything more tedious than a memoir. And if anyone's going to write it, it's not me. Um, because it's a fairly tedious um, uh, kind of format, I think. A, a lot of it, I mean, there's great ones like Dylan's Chronicles or 
uncut by Klaus Kinski or Straight Life by Art Pepper. You, you know, there's 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 good there's good ones, I guess, but there's a lot of um, flab, and I didn't want mine to add to that flab anyway. Um, I just said, look, you know, I'm not really interested. And he said, look, you know, keep us in mind. And then um, I guess 2018, I mean, uh, or 19, Nick put um, an exhibition on his life, Stranger Than Kindness, in uh, Denmark. And he asked if I'd like to put something in. And I said, look, do you want my piece of chewing gum from Nina Simone? And he's like, do you still have that? And I'm like, well, yeah, I do. So... It kind of launched something, and, and um, I was worried. I mean, in the book I explained this, but I, I was worried about um, losing it, and it had become this spiritual totem for me um, that for 20 years I just sort of looked after and kept in the towel that Nina Simone wiped her forehead with at this concert in 1999 in London that I'd seen and it changed my life. And I think everybody in the room, their life was changed after seeing this concert. It was one of these transformatory um, experiences and communal experiences that you have that you realise life will never be the same afterwards. And, and music can do that and film can do that and literature can do that, art can do that and people can do that. Like you can, you can have these transformations just by talking to somebody and they can say three things and it can change the course of your life. And this concert was such a thing. Um, and I, I kept a piece of chewing gum and I was worried about it getting lost, so I made copies of it in silver and gold. <laughs> and the, the woman who I asked to sort of do this task, she... Um, started sending me photos uh, that I found incredibly moving. And so I called Dan. I was working on a score in, somewhere in the studio, and I said, Dan, I've got an idea for a, a picture book. Um, it's about this bit of chewing gum. And I told him, and he said, look, come in and, you know, present it to the, the team. So next time I was in London, which was just before the first lockdown, before COVID kicked off in, in uh, the UK, and I went in and I sat around a table and I told them the story. And at the end of it, one uh, Alexa, one of the one of the head of the sort of department, she was in tears. And um, they said, "We don't need to talk about this. We want you to write it, um, and we'd like you to write it, and we'd like to put it out." And and you know, I hadn't given any thought to what it meant to write a book. And I just said, great, yeah, I'll write it, you know. And, and um, I thought I'd write it on the two of us doing the ghosting tour. And it was basically a picture book, what I had in mind. I had 400 photos um, just about making the copy of the gum and it being displayed in the exhibition. Has, has anyone read the book? Okay, so I don't want this to be spoiler alerts and that'll lie the place. But, uh, you know, I, I, so I was going to write, I thought, I, I was contracted to write 20,000 words and I thought that must have been about 10 pages. Um, I hadn't written anything. <laughs> I hadn't written anything since the early 80s when I was at university and, and I was writing essays about books that I hadn't even read and I was just, which I did all my academic life, 
watch a movie and then write the book about it. So write a story about it, write an essay about the film, because I was never a particularly strong reader, um, particularly syllabus stuff. Um, a few books really resonated with me, but I, I, I was always sitting around listening to music uh, rather than reading books. Um, so I, I thought in my head it was 10 pages, and, and Nick had said, when I told Nick I had a contract to write a book, he's like, do you want me to write an intro? And I thought, well, look, there's half the <laughs> 20,000 words. You know, like, I'm home and hose. I've got about five pages to write. I'll dash down a page a night on the two of us after the, 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 after the concert's done and, and we're done. And um, then COVID happened. The tour got cancelled. And then I was sort of stuck with this book um, that I'd been contracted to write. And then I realised that 20,000 words wasn't 10 pages. Um, I don't know, maths, I wasn't bad at maths, but I, I just had no idea what it meant. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess it's like all things uh, that have happened to me in my life, whether it's uh, making a score for a film, if I thought about it too much, or you know, when you think about the global thing or the the, the something, you you look at it and you think, oh, it's massive. You know, how do you do this? And I've learned over my creative life the the way to do things is to chip away at it. So, if any of you are thinking of writing something and it's scary, I would say chip away at it, like ten minutes a day, fifteen minutes a day. And this was what I did. I just sat there and nothing happened. Uh, I just sat there and I was in lockdown and, and I had these pictures uh, and I thought it was all about them. I thought it was the pictures. I needed to write a few words to explain things. And then I just couldn't write anything. I, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't put anything down on the, on the, on the, the screen, you know, it was on, on my laptop. So I picked up a pen and I wrote what I thought it might have been about. Um, but I couldn't translate that onto a, a page and get anything going. Uh, so then a friend of mine died, Hal Wilner, um, who was this wonderful producer of extraordinary conceptual records in, in New York. And he, he died of COVID. He was the first person I knew who died of COVID. And... Um, I reconnected with a friend of mine who was a scriptwriter, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, look, I'm trying to write a book and I'm absolutely going nowhere. And he said, look, um, why don't I interview you and I'll transcribe it and send it to you and you can see where to go from there. And that was actually a breakthrough for me because he saw it for something bigger than it was. He said, you think it's about the gum. You think it's about that, but it's not. It's about why you care. And I'm like, no, it's not like it. It's just about this gum and this beautiful act and love and care and understanding, you know, going on. And he's like, but why did you, out of 2,000 people in the room, pick it up? Why have you taken So he asked me questions and, and questions that I'd, you know, I, I didn't want any of myself in this. I just thought people would be moved by it the way that I was moved. But as is often the case, um, people aren't inside your head, which is something I've worked out in 
my adult years. I guess what I'm trying to say is I had to be really uh, coaxed into it. Um, it, it. I didn't find it easy at all. Um, I Even to the point of where when I'd finished the final draft and it all been corrected, I just said to Dan, we're not putting this out. There's no way I want this going out. Like, people might actually read it. I was so um, unconfident about it um, because I felt, I, I felt like a charlatan. I felt like, you know, I guess an actor who picks up a guitar and says, here's my solo record or something. And, of course, we should be able to do these things. But, you know, I've spent 30 years sort of fudging my way through a, a musical life in, in some way, you know. I, I've... Frozen. Do you know? Oh, he's still there, Warren. Can um, you hear us? Yeah. You can hear us. I will. That was the first question. I have seven pages of questions. No one's going in. Lock the doors. Lock the doors. Yeah. Anyone that's seen doors. Dirty Three Play I've knows Warren's not short of words. <laughs> I do want to talk, Sorry, Warren, I told about. I you to cut me off. Oh, I, I know I don't, but no, I don't. Can you cut off Warren Ellis. It's, um, I do want to talk about the religious experience of seeing Nina Simone, Dr. Nina Simone play live, which you write about really beautifully in the book. I think only the people in the room know what that experience was like. But as you said, why were you the one to jump up on the stage and grab the piece of chewing gum that she'd placed on the piano? What compelled you to want to hold a solid object that was connected to that show? Well, in, in truth, I never even thought about why I did it. I just did it. Um, and it never, it never struck me as strange. Um, and I remember when Nick realised that I still had it, he knew that I took it, but he had no idea that I'd kept it all these years. And he Warren, said to if me, I just one quickly there, because I do want to say there's a beautiful text exchange that you have with Nick in the book when he realises yeah. that you've still got the gum. And if you'll permit me to read it out, because I feel like it course, really beautifully it. illustrates the beautiful collaborative nature of their relationship and how easily they both click into an idea. Nick, you still have Nina Simone's chewing gum? Warren, totally. It's still in the towel she wiped her brow with at that concert. Nick... You worry me sometimes. <laughs> Warren, ha-ha, I guess I do. Nick, no, but we could exhibit the gum in its own glass case on a fucking marble plinth. <laughs> Warren, with lights and an alarm. Nick, and a velvet rope and a guard. Warren, that puts me at ease. I'd actually love you to have it. Nick, and one of those things you kneel on in church. Nick, a fucking hassock. A fucking hassock. Warren, how tall is the plinth? Nick, as tall as you like. <laughs> Do you feel like that shows the general, the, the creative conversation between you two and how you collaborate? Is that, isn't that illustrative? Yeah, ba basically, basically things move along really fast from a, a funny little idea to something quite elaborate within the space of four or five exchanges um and it's been my experience throughout my whole creative life this is what happens you, you just need to throw something out there I, I, and i think this is what my book i mean I, I had no idea what my book was about um until after i'd written it um i i, I have a, a better idea maybe of what it might be about 
but it's definitely about releasing ideas into the world. And, and this was a big thing that I learned, which is it, it, it is a crime to get them out, to just sit on things that are in your head and, and releasing them um, lets them take flight and, and they will live and die um, based on the people around, the people that get underneath them. And, and they can be the tiniest little, little, little ideas and people just get underneath them, and if they believe in them, then they will carry them and give them flight. But they need other people. You know, ideas don't exist on their own unless you sit and paint on your own or you write on your own. And my whole life, creative life, has been collaborative. And, and I, I believe that we are ideas. People are ideas waiting to happen. It's all in there, you know, from the moment you're born. It's who you come in contact with in your life that, that potentially can draw your better self out of you. And, and I realized this after I'd written the book that my life, creative life, has been like that. People who just sort of leaned over my shoulder and said, really good, this thing that you're doing here, or this thing that you've just played, this is a really good idea. And I, I was very uh, timid about getting ideas out. You know, I, I wasn't someone who knew what they wanted to do. You know, I, I thought my musical career was washed up when I was 24. I was, and, and literally a guy yelled out at me across the street in Melbourne in, in the early 90s and said, hey, Warren, do you still play a violin? And I said, I think so, but it's been a long time. And he's like, I've got a friend with a bunch of songs you want to come and have a practice and we've got a show Friday night and I went had a practice and we played a show with a band called Busload of Faith and then within a month after that you know I'd formed Dirty Three I was playing in a bunch of bands in Melbourne with about with Kim Salmon and and you know Charlie Marshall and my my sort of step back into the musical world really happened by accident by somebody remembering that I did something that I'd forgotten about basically um, and, and yeah, I guess, I guess, um, that is a bit of a, um, not just about our, Nick and my relationship, which, um, you know, is, is a very particular one, but it's, it is also how my creative life has been. Um, other people, uh, kind of getting under ideas that I have or me getting under their ideas. Um, and you talk about letting go of ideas. There's also a lot in the book that you talk about letting go of songs. You talk about performing your uh, soundtracks with Nick with a 40-piece choir and a 50-piece orchestra and how once those songs are performed in that context, you're letting them go out to be something else. But there's also a lot in this book about letting go of objects. The gum itself, there's yeah. the transitional period where you let go of the gum is actually probably some of the most emotional writing in there. Do you want to talk us through what that process was like for you? Yeah, I guess I guess that you know you make something it doesn't exist until until people have taken it on and that's when it gets a life. It it has a life when you're creating it, but it's in within a, a small group of people or just something that you've done on your own and it's private. But like the gum, the gum would have sat in the drawer when I slipped this mortal coil, whenever that is, it would have ended up in the bin and and gone and. For me, the gum, the gum sort of embodies, or it's an, it's a metaphor for, for ideas, um, that if you release them into the world, there's the potential that they will take flight. You know, now I'm not saying they're all going to be hits and they're all going to be big, but 
they get a life. And, and that to me seemed to be the, the kind of the crux of the, of, or the premise of the book um, once I started writing it. And, and the gum basically is a metaphor for, for the creative process and the fact that ideas need love and care from people to get underneath them in, in order for them to, to, to at least have the chance to exist. Um, but, you know, I, I, I also um, saw that, like, memory is what defines us. And I had these little objects that, that allowed me to remember my history, I guess, you know. And we all have these little things, you know. I don't know if it's a, a ticket stub or if it's a, a, a pair of booties off your firstborn kid or something or a pair of sp a spoon that your grandmother had or something or I don't know you know like we, we have these little things and I realized I had these these little objects and these things that I'd done all my life these little rituals that I did um, that helped me find a place in the world and, and helped me actually remember my narrative it's like when somebody dies talking about them brings them back and and they they seemingly exist uh, when you talk, stories bring things to life, bring people to life again. And, and that's why the, the sort of art of storytelling and the culture of storytelling is so important because it keeps things alive and it's passed on. And, and the, the concert itself is something that's passed on because it, it can only be told verbally. Um, there's no recorded evidence. There's no footage. There's no iPhone, you know, recording of it. So it, the only way it can be passed on or transmitted is by being told to somebody. And, and that's a beautiful thing that happens, you know, when you, when you, you talk to somebody like that. Um, you're right to say that all of us do collect objects, the ticket stubs, the booties, and we imbue them with meaning that is very personal to us. I think your level of collection is a, perhaps a little more <laughs> passionate than others. It started when you were a kid and you used to collect lead weights, which I don't know if anyone here has a lead weight collection, but you would pick them. It's a real bowerbird you're collecting, is that right? Yeah, I guess it, I guess I real it was attached to superstition, you know. Like I I placed some superstitious importance over um, picking up these tire weights that um, seem, don't seem to exist as often as they used to. I don't find them as much, but I realised that you know I've had this thing all my life of collecting things, and, and that that they somehow uh, I had I attached a, a significance to them that bad luck would happen to me if I didn't pick them up, these tire weights. And they're heavy, you know, so it was a real problem as a kid, um, <laughs> carrying them around all the time, and where to put them, you know. And, and, and actually looking back at that made me realise that I'd had these boxes of things, which these boxes, like little treasure chests of things that were really important to me that I still have, you know, like a drawer and I throw things in, that they were in a way were, you know, set up, by my father, who had a box of his lyrics. He, he was a country and western uh, singer and songwriter, and he had this box of songs that was like all his dreams up in the cupboard in, in, in the family house. And 
I didn't even know what was in there, but I, I, you know, he'd show me from time to time. And it was really like a big moment when he would sort of pull out these words and photos of himself as a younger man and his signature he'd practiced and he'd made a record, you know, and, and my, my father sort of um, showed me this magic trick, which was to, to, you know, I remember one day saying, how, how do you write a song? Uh, it seemed like such an extraordinary thing to do. And he said, it's really easy. And he opened a book of poetry and he opened up to any a random page and he just started playing his guitar and started singing the poem to, to his guitar. And I didn't realise until I was writing this what a gift this had been. He, that was like my, I guess, my portal to the creative process. Um, and then I guess, you know, as I started looking at the book, I realised I'd had these phenomenal one of a better word um Beethoven had appeared to me several times in 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 my life um and it was always associated with light this this white light and I, and it was the same experience when I saw this concert the room was transformed there was something supernatural going on which made me remember this story the earliest story I can remember with my brother a shared experience about some clowns appearing in the back garden and I realised that, that, that uh, well, actually, Oren, the guy that sort of transcribed the first interviews that I did with him, he said to me, dude, <laughs> he's, he's American, he goes, dude, uh, this is your first supernatural experience. This may be the reason that you do what you do. And I'm like, get out of here, you know, like, you're fucking insane. And, and he's like, no, the way that you dealt with this, the way that you embraced it, the way that you just took it as normal, um, seeing these clowns and that you just kind of like embraced it. Maybe that's why you picked up the accordion at the rubbish dump, you know, like, and you just didn't walk away from it, you know. So he sort of allowed me to see these threads uh, of, of things that had happened in my life um, that seemed to actually point to why I actually went up and took the gun. Uh, Basically, he, he said to me, it's why you care about music is, is what I think your, your story is about, why you care about it, and why I, you care enough to take it. I think anyone that's read the book, and hopefully uh, many of you who haven't will go and purchase it tonight, but it is such a lovely collection in itself of objects and ideas and experiences and emotions that you've had that all together work with this kind of cohesive story. Like you said, all those things that pointed towards why you took the gum. Now, you were saying that Nina Simone's gum is a metaphor. It was also something that you carried with you for... You didn't even just carry it with you. You put it in a drawer at your house. It was there yeah. for years and years and years until it was activated, I guess, by the text message I read out previously. Now, for an object that is a metaphor, that is something that you had been able to put away in a drawer and lived in your life, I do want to talk about that experience of when it came time to put it in the exhibition and you realised you were going to cast it in metal, and in order to cast it in metal, that meant unwrapping it and taking it out of the towel. And that yeah. felt like quite a traumatic... It's one of the most traumatic kind of experiences in the book. It felt like you were very attached to this object as metaphor. Well, I, 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 I felt like 
I never felt like I owned it. I, I felt like I was a custodian of it. I, I never felt like it belonged to me. And, and I realized that it belonged to the world when I saw the reaction, you know, that people had when they saw it or when they heard that I had it. Um, the curator of the exhibition, you know, how, you know, she would, once she got it, she was terrified and she would wake up and drive down to the gallery and open it up and go in to check that it was still there. Um, and still, to, I mean, I saw her recently and, and she didn't want to take it on tour because it's gone to Montreal now. And I said, why? And she said, because it's going to be the death of me. Like, I just cannot deal with the responsibility of looking after this, this thing of such great significance. And what's incredibly beautiful about that, and I think about the whole thing, is that it's about absolutely nothing. Um, the thing that this speaks of is the imagination and people wanting to be their best self that they can be around this. And, and it's where I, I find, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of beauty around, around the idea of it. Um, it's absolutely nothing that we are trying to protect. It's a piece of gum that has become, I guess, a, a holy relic for some people. And, and I, I looked at it like that that's what I'd been taking care of, a holy relic. And other people showed me this, people who cared, and Muller Mister, a friend of mine who's a fashion designer. The way Nick responded, the way Chris responded, they fueled my belief in it as well. And that was important because when you get into the, for me, you know, when you get into the process of anything creative, you, you, you'll get the idea and you're feeling really good, but then you, after a while you think, what was I thinking, you know? You, you can't remember why you stepped in there with it in the first place, and then you think, who is going to care about this anyway? Um, and this, this is poison to the creative process, and you have to try and, and fan it away if you can, but it's also what makes you fight for the idea. It's what makes you reach out to somebody and say, you know, am I on the right track with this? And it's, again, it's back to people's affirmation, people pointing out things to me that allows me to kind of push forward and push through those problems. And I remember making, we made a record uh, with Dirty Three called Ocean Songs and, and we decided, you know, we wanted to go in and make a really quiet record because it had been basically violent and bloody and messy, everything that, for years before, a few years before that. We wanted to make a quiet record and, and uh, we worked with Steve Albini, who's a producer in Chicago, and, and he, he, we got in the studio, told him, he's like, okay, and then I think we had five days to make it or something, or four days. And after about day two, we, we sat back and listened to some of it. And we were all mortified. And we just said, oh, my God, we've totally fucked it up. Like, it just doesn't sound like anything. And he said, can I step in here and say something? I was like, please do. And he said, well, you came in here and you said you wanted to make it quiet. I've seen you guys play and I thought we were going to make the greatest rock and roll record since Raw Power. And when you told me you wanted to make a quiet record, I have to admit I was disappointed. And uh, he said, but what I would say is that I see people get in the studio and this happens to them. I would say to you, remember what you came in here to do. You had a good idea. Don't lose sight of that. Remember what you were trying to do. And I've always kind of remembered that when I get in these situations, that 
the original idea is always worth going back to when you're in doubt, why did you go in there in the first place and what was the idea? Because it's normal to kind of talk yourself out of it after a while, um, Can I particularly if it's going around in your head. On that, you talked about the, the gum itself, that the, um, the energy that got built when other people started responding to it and became custodians yeah. of it. And, but would that have, if, if people didn't take that interest in it, would have it affected your connection to it and your feeling as that, that you were the custodian of it? Well, as, as I said before, I, th I think stepping into such a foreign um, thing, uh, a foreign activity like writing, I mean, you know, I felt incredibly vulnerable. I thought, I was thinking, God, people might actually read this. Um, music, I've never felt misunderstood. I don't have a message. I, 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 I don't write lyrics. So people either respond to it emotionally or they don't. And I've never had to justify anything that I've ever done. Um, I've never felt misunderstood. I've never cared if people didn't like it or not. Like, I just don't care about that. Um, but this felt different because reading, I think pe people tend to be cr critical in, in a different way. And I'd been doing something for 30 years, which is making music, and suddenly I was expressing myself in a different way. So I felt very vulnerable and, and un unsure about the process. And I, and I think these people, I know these people who kind of uh, re, reaffirmed what I thought and were encouraging were really important because if somebody had said, look, you know, what, are, what the fuck are you talking about? And, you know, this is just stupid. Um, or who do you think you are? That would have really killed my desire to do it. And I'm eternally grateful to the, the people who are in the book that I mentioned because it, it, it was like a collaborative, uh, collaborative project for me. Um, and I was reaching out to people all the time and calling them Anne, Christina, Rachel at the, at the office um, and talking to them about it. Kids, my, my, my children's friends, you know, they saw me sitting in the shed in the lockdown, you know, when, when it all opened up, they're like, what have you been doing? And I'm like, I've been trying to write a book. And, and I would tell them about it and then they would talk to me about it. So I, I would sort of talk to people about it and get encouragement from them um, about the process. So all these people for me um, were in, incredibly important to, to me actually writing it. But their enthusiasm, um, I mean, I have to say Faber, uh, were extraordinary. Dan was amazing. He just kind of sat with me the whole way. Um, he was very kind of encouraging and critical in a good way. And I know that stepping out of my comfort zone into something that was uh, very new to me, my enthusiasm for it could have been killed very quickly. Um, usually in the studio, it's the things that I don't get that I'm drawn towards. When, I, when I'm making music, I mean, if it sounds like T-Rex, leave it for T-Rex, you know, like because they've already done it really well. But if it sounds like I don't really know what it is or but there's something, it's, it's, a, it's a, a sort of gut instinct that I have about something um, that I don't really get, but it moves me in a certain way. I'm, I'm drawn towards that. Uh, um, and... The, in this instance, writing, I felt kind of at sea and, and, and I felt um, very vulnerable in a very different way. So 
their encouragement was really important. You talked about um, being in the shed writing the book, obviously, during lockdown. There's a, a moment in the book where the, 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 the exhibition was meant to open in Copenhagen, I believe, in March 2020, which is a very significant yeah. tilt in the axis for all of us. And, of course, it got postponed, cancelled, as so many gigs, concerts, gallery openings did. How have these two years been for you in terms of that letting go and surrender of expectations of a touring artist or a, a maker? Well, I, I, you know, I guess it's like everybody, we just had to find a way to, to, to move within the, um, the situation. Um, and I, I, I was really aware what a hard time everybody was having in Australia with the sort of brutal lockdowns that were going on. We seem to have them and then open up a bit and then go back go back in again. Um, they they don't think they were as long and draconic as 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 they were in Victoria at least. Um, you know, I I realised that I was I was privileged if, that I was able to actually keep a roof over my family's head and that I was able to feed feed them. Um, and that I could actually find ways to work within that uh, situation. You know, I, I made a record with Marianne Faithful. Uh, I wrote the book. I opened an elef a, a, a animal park, an animal sanctuary in Sumatra, um, you know, for animals that, that need um, a home to die in, basically, with dignity. And, and we, we set that up. And, and again, the... the the park, Alice Park, is, is, is very much like the book. It's about launching an idea and then the community getting underneath it. And, and it moves me incredibly to this day, you know, like I can't imagine my life without that, uh, without the park. You know, I, I launched this idea, I bought some land, donated it to, to uh, an institution, and then we launched the idea and the community just got underneath it, the, the, the fans around the music that I do, the, the greater community, and we were funded in two months. We're building it. We, we, we've housed animals. I'm expanding the land. Um, you know, we're, we're going to get elephants in probably next year. You know, like it's, it's, all, it's, it's all really wonderful. But again, it's like the idea in the book, you know, that ideas need love and care underneath them to take flight. So I spent lockdown doing that and, and I guess wondering like everybody else if life was going to go back to normal. I mean, I've been back out touring now uh, since last September. Uh, Nick and I went out um, in the UK and then in North America. Now I'm preparing for summer festivals in Europe, which all seems surreal compared to the last two years. Um, and it feels like there's sort of light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, but, uh, you know, like I'm also aware that a lot of people, um, a lot of people suffered incredibly uh, in the last two years um, and weren't able to kind of continue working in some way. So I don't say that all that flippantly. Um. I do want to talk about, uh, and I'll just get uh, five minutes before anyone wants to start asking questions, so if you want to start making your way down, um, I'll open that up in about five minutes. Uh, talk about Dr Nina Simone, who looms large over this book, not just in title, but in spirit. Um, you were introduced to some of her earlier work, 
and it, it was a, it was as a, maybe not as transformative an experience as seeing her live. But how has um, how has her creative influence affected your artistic and personal life? Well, you know, I mean, Lena Simone is is one of a a, a bunch of people who have informed me. Um, they're all people who, are, you know, I'm just in the mud swimming around in the creative mud, you know, I'm a, a bottom feeder. These people, like Nina Simone, you know, they're, they're like top shelf people, you know, they're, they're up there, people like, you know, they're up there, Beethoven and John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane and whoever you want to put up there, you know, th these are people that you know you won't reach their heights, but they give you something to aim for or they, they show you a way, but... But with Nina Simone, you know her. It's hard to think of an artist that that's that straddled such a sort of incredible period the way that she did. Um, the whole black rights movement. You know, she knew Martin Luther King. She was there in the heat of all that stuff, uh, and being a woman, being black, being so sort of outspoken, forthright, and defiant. And I think that's what we saw when we saw this concert. It was this years of experience that suddenly came to her rescue because, you know, she was frail. She was very kind of um, physically challenged and, and psychologically challenged. And it was incredibly powerful to see her just seemingly summon up the spirits that have de defined her, had defined her all her life and put on this concert that was just life-changing. Um, and I think if anybody been to a concert like that you know what I'm talking about or you you've listened to a bit of music that's you know that after that day things won't be the same this is powerful stuff and it's out there you know you just have to look for it you have to open yourself to it I think it's worth mentioning while we're speaking about that specific gig uh Nina Simone's magnificent rider that she requested backstage can you talk us through what she asked someone to bring yeah, yeah the, 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 our sound guy, Matt Crosby, who's uh, uh, an Australian, he um, had done the sound check with her and it was at that point that they realised she'd sacked the bass player and, you know, she was going to play the bass with her left hand. And Matt kind of got to spend an hour with her, the only person I know actually, apart from uh, Chloe Savini's dad who drove Nina Simone to the airport, I realised talking to her the other day in New York for, for, for my book launch there. I don't know anyone that spent time with her. And Matt spent an hour with her, you know, and um, he went backstage uh, to see her before the performance and asked if she wanted anything. And she said, well, since you're asking, I'd like some champagne, cocaine and some sausages. And uh, Matt said, I think I can organise that for you. So that was about 30 minutes before the gig. So he went and got some coke and some sausages from the cafeteria and a bottle of champagne and took them back and um, went back after the show and there was half a line of coke which he finished off and the champagne was gone and the sausages were gone as well. Such a weird coincidence that that was what I requested tonight, which is a, a strange Venn diagram. It's back there. Did you get it? So, oh, yes. Yeah, come back afterwards. You can all... Um, that religious experience that you had at that, I must, you know, in your life you would have seen a lot of incredible performances. Has anything 
been in that, that realm of that powerful religious experience for you? Can you think of other shows that have had that effect on you? Um, yeah, I mean, I have... I saw Jerry Lee at a concert. I saw Alice Coltrane. Uh, Jerry Lee, I saw him put on a show that just, again, he was old and could barely walk and it sort of helped him out to the stage and he just kind of put his fists up in the air and leaned into the, the, in, the killer, you know, leaned into the audience, uh, sat down and just played this magnificent show, tried to get in the piano, he couldn't, so they all got underneath him and lifted him up and so he could bash his foot on the piano. And it was just extraordinary stuff. When young, I mean, you know, like, when I started out, like, I, I, you just feel like you, you can do anything. And as you get older, you realise that um, some things get a bit harder. Um, I'm always moved. For me, the stage is a really sacred place. And, and I've been fortunate to play with the same people, whether it's Dirty Three or, or Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, for the last 30 years. And I know we're getting older. And I know that when we get on the stage, this energy is there that has been there since day one. And there's this sense of communion that happens with the audience um, that, that you, you feel that you know when it's happening that the show is working really well. And, and when it's not there, it gives you something to, to sort of hope for for the next time. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's not just about playing a show amongst yourselves. You know, it, it, a good show is about what goes on between the audience and you. And I think it's something that, you know, in the research on this that I found just by accident, there was an interview with Nina Simone and she talks about that concert being one of the favourite of her life. And when they said why, she said because of the audience. And, and I think this is the thing that when you're in the audience, you, you don't really think the, the band, the, the performer's thinking about you, but it's incredibly important because... Again, it's, it's like ideas, they, they only happen if they get out in community. So I, I guess, you know, the book is about community, um, we were talking how we how, need each other. We were talking before the event about there's, I mean, there's many beautiful, infamous, famous Dirty Three gigs. I'm sure many of you in this room have been to some. There's one specific one that I was saying to Warren, it's like when the Sex Pistols first, everyone claims to be at that first Sex Pistols gig in America, that, the, that everyone that's claimed to be there, and there's a Dirty Three gig at the Meredith Music Festival that happened in the middle of an electric storm, which I was at. Uh, and was anyone else uh, the, the, the quite specific? Oh, all right, I, I see you. Um, and Warren, like, people do have those sort of religious experiences and that, at Dirty Three events. How does it make you feel that there may be people who want to leap on stage and take your gum, as it were. <laughs> well, they're welcome to if they do. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been one to see myself within that, um, with, within that way of thinking, um, to be honest, you know. Like, I mean, I'm always incredibly moved that people have taken on music I've been involved in in their life and that it's moved them. I mean, that is still the highest compliment people can give you, that they've given it time in their life and that it's meant something to them uh, is, is still something that I will, you know, hopefully never grow tired of hearing. Um, I'd rather that than, than 
than than you know I, I guess people being fanatical about about you or the, the whole cult the, the sort of cult of of celebrity and all that is never something that's interested me at all um i i just love playing music um and the day that i don't then that's the day i shouldn't be doing it um if i don't feel the way that i've always felt about getting up there and playing for you and playing with the people that i'm with then i shouldn't be there i mean it's always been about that for me um so i mean that that gig you're talking about i thought everybody was applauding all the amazing moves i was doing i just seemingly <laughs> kind of went like this and there was this and then i found out later there was this lightning storm going on and you know talk about uh, situations reassessed um, <laughs> um i, I should just say, thought it was did, my does, amazing moves but your moves were also amazing um does anyone want to ask a question now is the moment do you want to make your way down to the microphone down here um there's one on this side of stage, there's another one here. If anyone would like to come down, just come down. Are you okay? No. No? Oh, gosh. I'm okay now. Okay, you're okay now. That's good. Warren, we've got a couple of people who are coming down to ask questions. Um, Fabulous. And whenever you're ready. It's so good to see you all in a room. <laughs> Hello, Warren. <laughs> First, let me say thank you very much for quite a moving experience reading your book because I come from a... Well, my mother was... A, she kept Jerry Lewis's cigarette butts <laughs> in our glory box. <laughs> and I still have them years after. I'm, I think my sister still well, has of course, one of them. Of course too. you do. Yes. <laughs> Very simple question, which has been bugging me yeah. for years, but are you Greek? <laughs> no, I'm not, but uh, every time I'm in Greece, you, can you turn around? I can't see you. Where are you? <laughs> He's up there. Well, just t turn around the other Jesus. Turn around the other <laughs> way. There you are. Hello. Where are um, you? Oh, okay. There you are. That's it. Um, no, I'm not. I wish I was sometimes. Um, when I go to Greece, everybody crosses themselves when I walk past them. I'm a black. And sometimes I have to say I do buy into that and I kind of give them one back. Like, do, a few, do a few things like that. Uh, I have been known to, 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 to have some fun with that. But uh, no, I'm not. But. Uh, there's a few skeletons in the family closet, so anything's possible. It, it, look, honestly. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Um, we've got another question. There's someone else down here. Yes, go ahead. Hi, Warren. Um, yeah, so um, my question kind of links to your creative process. You know, in your book, you know, you, um, you talk about, you know, having the gum and how it, like, transformed your creative experience. I'm, I'm, I'm a lifelong fan of the bad seeds, you know, from like the age of 10, I was like delved in there, never, never, never looked back. But from one of you joined the bad seeds, I think there's been like a real catalyst, a real sea change and just like real brevity, like just opened up wide the kind of sound and just the, 
it just encapsulates so many genres of music, and it's it's amazing. So, I think since you've joined, and up to now, like you know, it's it's gone through so many genres and so many things. I think my question is, um, well, where can you go, and, and what worries like? But also, where is the where is the boundary? Where where will you not go? You know, you know, for example, will there be a techno record? Lauren, <laughs> are you going to put out a rave record? Or, 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 like, or like a rockabilly Batsies? Like, 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 uh, personally, I love all music, you know. And, yeah, you know, for me, going back to like what you said in the NME interview about like David Bowie's Low, it was just like, what the fuck is this? You, you, want, you want people to like go like, what the fuck is this? And I do constantly. Well, so, okay, so. just let, sorry, let me, let me interrupt you because you've said some good <laughs> things there. And, and I think if, if I'm not challenged, how can I expect the audience to be challenged? Um, so I have to be curious and terrified at the same time um, with what I'm working on. If, if it's just familiar to me, um, it's going to be familiar to anybody listening and I don't feel like I've done my job. Um, I don't make music for myself. Other people make music for me. I, I don't make music for myself to listen to. Um, you know, I think the, the, the Bad Seeds, bef before I joined, I was such a massive fan of them uh, and the birthday party, um, primarily because they constantly kept me guessing about where they would go. And, and the Bad Seeds has always been this extraordinary band that, weren't worried about like making a record that sounded like the last one. It was more about like, where could they go? And that as a listener to me, I felt, I, I felt like I wasn't being treated like a moron. I felt like I was being treated with some respect and, and artists that, that, that treat me with respect um, and challenge me and make stuff that I don't get that takes, a while for me to get my head around. I remember here and here comes the warm jets. And it was in, you know, at a time when buying a record was like, I, I just, you know, like when you bought a record, you were shelling out serious money and it was money I didn't have. So I couldn't afford to not like it. So I remember taking that record back. Now it's one of my favorite records these days, but at the time I just couldn't afford to keep a record that I didn't really get, you know, like really quickly. So. I now it's something that I really love that record, but I, I just I feel it's like my duty to do what um, I see other artists do that inspire me uh, is to try and do the same thing. Um, if that I, answers your question, I know we've got we've got time for one more question. I'm so sorry. So, oh, <laughs> thank you. I've got a question. Oh, so, oh I'm, yeah. gosh, I'm so sorry. One, we've got two more questions. Well, got to keep it quick. Warren, hi, mate. Um, my question is, you were, Hello. Hi. you were telling the story about you, you wanted to make the Quiet album and the, you were unsure if it was any good or not, and then the guy came in and said, yeah, yeah, it's good, remember the original idea, and then we sort of got distracted and we went off in another direction. What did you actually think of the album in the end? Did he talk you around? Did you like it? Or how did you feel about the Quiet album in the end? Well, that's the record that we put out. So he gave us the courage to go forward, he, which, which I live by to this day, that advice, you know, like when you are questioning yourself, remember what you went in there to do. And 
Steve gave us the courage to put out the record that you hear. We continued with it. A lesser producer would have said, yeah, thank God. I mean, you know, like, what the fuck were you thinking? You know, what a mistake. You know, like, great, let's, let's turn the amps up. Now, now, the record you hear came out because Steve had the confidence to say, you know, don't forget what you were trying to do. And I think it's what I'm talking about the whole time, um, in, in a way, is, is to take risks uh, and to try and be bold with the things that you do. Um, I will be bold with everything except going over time. So did we have one more question? Is that one more question? Yes. Um, hello, Warren. Um, quick question. Music. Hello. Hi. Um, music is, you know, in my mind, something of taking flight and um, kind of being airborne. Do you think, you know, having an interest in objects grounds you um, and is more of the weight that kind of keeps you a bit more centered when music tries to kind of pull you to the sky? And it's a bit of an abstract question, but I just wonder if those objects kind of give you a bit more solidity that to hold on to or anchor you. I think they remind me of my story. And, and, and with, without, without a memory or, a, you know, fear of losing my memory is, is terrifying because it's what defines me. Um, and it defines our, our story and our relationship to people and our relationship, I guess, to, to, to life. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if they ground me. I think they just give me a, a thing that I can I can look at and remember something, remember a moment. I can get those feelings um, that I need. I, you know, I'm, I, I've had several kind of moments in my life where, you, you know, I've probably had what you would say is a nervous breakdown and stuff like that. And I had one a few years ago and I couldn't play. And uh, I had a tour looming and it was terrifying. Um, and I could not play. And, and, and I remember when I did sit down and eventually start playing, I realised that, you know, 40 years, I guess, ever since I started playing music as a kid, it was like exercising, which I encourage everybody to do. Like, you know, exercising is an amazing thing to do because it pushes away a lot of stuff um, and it can set you up to kind of approach the day or what you're going to do. Um, and I realised that I'd been training this part of my brain or whatever, uh, playing music, and, and it was, it's this place that I talk about in the book. And I'm, I, I had a hard time in the late 80s and was heartbroken and depressed and didn't even realise it. But I could sit in the streets and play the violin and I could stop all the chatter and the doubt and just lock in into this place that I've created. And I think we create these places. Reading is a wonderful place for that where you can just push everything away. And you know that all writing is like that or watching a movie um, or going to a gallery um, or talking to people. And, and, and I think when you can't push that stuff away, it's when it's become insurmountable and then you need help to get out of there. But... Um, I actually found that I, I found throughout my life that the, the, the act of actually concentrating on something, which is just sitting, holding my violin and playing it, gave me a way of channeling. You know, my life was chaos in the in the nineties by my own making. You know, and and, and 
getting up there and playing every night was a way of focusing something into the instrument and into the show that pushed everything away. Um, so I don't know if objects, act, I don't, I've actually found music to be incredibly grounding for, to, for me, and if that makes sense. I'm so reluctant to have to draw this session to a close. And my apologies to you for not getting a question in. I'm conscious of writers' festivals making respect for the next event. I'm so sorry. Um, Warren, you've written this beautiful book. I'm glad you allowed yourself to be Thank vulnerable you. and that you were the custodian of this precious object and that you shared it with us. You're a beautiful human. It's such a privilege to all be in this room together. Oh, and I'm so glad we're alive at the same time. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to swf.org.au for more great content.